The power of Christ compels us. In honor of the exorcist believer, which religion is right? Kidding. What's cinema's creepiest child? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I am uh, going in honor of Wes Anderson. Also, more on him later. Uh, that kid from uh, Moonrise Kingdom who uh, uh, kicks off the whole thing, Jared Gilman. I don't like him. I don't like his vibe. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh. Damn. <laughs> He's going to unfollow uh, you on Twitter. I'm not just saying that to be a troll. Uh, I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with that that kid from the RoboCop remake. We all know who I'm talking about with his little <laughs> cute little picture oh. on RoboCop's desk. We don't know what he's yeah. really up to, do we? I knew that was coming. Oh, the interesting uh, diverse answers here. Uh, hey, it's me, David the Seven. I'm going to go with actress Millie Shapiro's character Charlie in Hereditary, which I hope you've seen because then you'll agree with me. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I, I have been thinking a lot about the kid from that episode of The Twilight Zone recently, where he has, like, godlike powers and just terrorizes everyone. Uh, may or may not have something to do with the fact that I have a very bossy three-and-a-half-year-old. Uh, but mm. I, I will go with the kid from Looper. I've just never... I feel the same way about him that I think Katie does about Jared Gilman, who I think is uh, delightful in Moonrise Kingdom. But, uh, um, you know, I guess we all have our... Uh, I don't our, remember there the, being the a kid in mothers. Looper. The kid. No oh. memory of this whatsoever. It, it, yeah, anyway, it's, it's, Katie, uh, I love you, but you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> there is very I much a kid that. in Looper. I don't, do I remember Looper? You remember Emily Blunt in Looper? She is a kid. she's in Looper. Oh. Eh, that's, that would have been my best guess. Does the kid turn out to be somebody? Is he, sure. Yeah, like the yeah. guy. Oh, he's Joseph Gordon-Levitt? No, no, not like the, the, the he's the big, the big bad, potentially. <laughs> okay. He's Mr. Looper. Yes. Aha. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Hanging with okay. Mr. Looper. All right. Oh, all right. Let's, let's move <laughs> Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's awesome. Awesome. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It is episode 447. It is the week of Wednesday, October 4th. That is the day that in 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. That's cool. That's a good one. Yeah. Like Americans Sputnik. really took that uh, in stride what and the... didn't, you know, yeah, it, jump, things were jump a Cold War space race it. at all. What's cool about it, Katie? Uh, you know, I like things that go into space. Satellites. Oh, I thought you were going to go on a bit of a pro-Russia rant. Right oh, yeah, that, that is what I was about to do. I was going to hijack things early on, though, for some programming notes, uh, which is that we're taking next week off. No one is canceling the podcast, as far as I know. If Patches hijacks the feed, I will not know about it. Ah. Uh, we're taking a week off, but for a good reason, because uh, one of us is going to be on a book tour. And hopefully Yay. you've been paying attention. Oh, and I you, hope it's me. Uh, Congrats, no David. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. I would love you forgot about that. But you really, you're blowing your deadline. You better get that book done. I can think of no better dream than, than having written a book with no memory of having to put in the work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so one of us, Dave, is going to be on a book tour with our beloved Joanna Robinson in New York City. And uh, we're all going to be in one place. That is a plan. I don't want to jinx it and have someone's kid get sick or fall off a building or Whoa. something. But 
Well, uh, I, I feel mean, like now you can plug you the it. thing that I'm hosting for the book tour. Go for it. You Comic-Con. should plug the thing that you're hosting. I'll definitely be uh-huh. there because I'm hosting a, a panel at the New York Comic Convention with the with the writers of the MCU book. Who are they? It's Dave and Joanna. And, it's uh, me and Joanna Robinson and Gavin Edwards. And Gavin, my new friend. My long In conversation friend. with Matt Patches. Yeah, we'll see how uh, it goes. Wait, I've, yeah. I've already been and told my... we're throwing to the uh, audience Q and A as early as possible, which uh, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not taking as a ding on my hosting. My skills. plan is to be in that audience if they will ever give me a press badge. So stay tuned. I'm trying my oh, best. I got approved. You didn't get approved. No, I planned like last week. I don't know. Yeah, you probably got approved because you're enough. moderating a panel. <laughs> not geeky enough. Uh, uh, yeah, yes. Dave's going to be in New York. Dave, where can people figure out where to find you if they want to come see you in person? If you go to themcubook.com, uh, you could A, order the book there, and B, see a list of events what that we're doing. What cities att- are you going to? Uh, we'll be in... Uh, New York. See, Joanna will be in Los Angeles. Uh, Joanna and I will be in Denver. Uh, all three of us will be in New York. Then Joanna and I are bopping down to D.C., which is actually Ralston, Virginia. And then Joanna and I are bopping up to Boston. And that's the end of this leg until next ah, month. Yes. The we'll be in Texas. Murphy's famous song, <laughs> Bopping Up to Boston. Be bopping up to Boston. Uh, we'll be in at the Texas Book Festival in early November. And then I think uh, in the, like, the third week of November, we're going to go to Heroes Dutch Comic Con in wow. the Netherlands. Whoa! Oh, I didn't That's know about that. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, we're locking that down, but we can for, back our, up here, for our European folk. The Texas Book Festival? Are you one of the non-banned books uh, presenting? Oh, wow. Oh, oh, oh. This, is held, is ben this is held in wonderful Austin. Oh, okay, got it. It is, it is a free event for anybody that can get down to Austin or lives in Austin, uh, but that does mean, uh, you know, there's going to be lines for some big events. Luckily, I don't think that's going to be us. Like, Stacey Abrams is <laughs> oh. headlining this event. So. Well, she's a geek. I, 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 She'll probably show up that, to your she is. she is a geek. I mean, I'll wear my disco shirt just for her. Yeah, she's a big um, track she's, a, she's our federation president in the most future timeline. Uh, but yeah, and then, you know, if anything else gets added, the mcubook.com uh, will let you know how to do that. And people it's, can and uh, pre-order the book now before. Yeah. Wow. If you ordered it from, the, if you pre-ordered it from the publisher, it turns out they sent them out uh, already. So oh, uh, pre-order shit. from the publisher Spoilers. is the way to go. So your book but, has already uh, been yeah. published in some ways. Oh, it is out there. My mom has. I have three to go publish uh, the MCU book explained on Polygon. Let me go. Uh, <laughs> go hit pub. Is yeah, there a post-credit scene after your book? Oh, Actually, uh, that might be a spoiler. You might have one. Yes, yes, you should. I just uh, need to in- interrupt this promotion with some breaking news, which is that uh, Pierce Gagnon, the kid from Looper, has three <laughs> brothers, including <laughs> one named Steel. Steel Gagnon. <laughs> Steel and Pierce. A lot of uh, yeah. weaponry vibes. David in that has family. found his book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would absolutely uh, write a, like, uh, What's the, the the Tyler Perry character? Uh, Cross, Alex Cross. No, like uh, Alex no, Cross. obviously Medea is the Tyler Perry character. Tyler Perry character, but like an Alex Cross type airport novel about steel gagnon, Me- melting yeah, steel beams. The Gaglin family story. 
That's uh, we uh, David will be happily celebrating your book release of the Steel Gagden. Um, yes, <laughs> there are going to uh, be so many different book series. releases of that series. I'm pumping one out like every six months. So yeah, a lot of drinking <laughs> in, at your, bars. in your vast free time. I'm very <laughs> yeah. excited for you. Uh, all right. That's some shameless self-promotion, but there's still more because we have an app review and an we email. We will never get to the real to part of this podcast. Woo! No. We do have a review on iTunes from Carenet Cetera, who says, One of the best film podcasts. Like many, I discovered this podcast through Blank Check years ago, and it quickly became one of my favorites. The hosts offer a variety of perspectives, and as the title suggests, they aren't afraid to disagree. I can't tell you how refreshing it is to hear genuinely thought-provoking discussions rather than hosts just mindlessly agreeing with each other's points. I've been listening to some of the early episodes prior to when I came aboard as a fan, and it's been a delight. Patches exclaiming, millions of people play World of Warcraft. How is the movie not going to be huge? Katie earnestly asking, (laughs) wait, I thought Anthony Hopkins died. And all the hosts asking for (laughs) more Cloverfield movies after 10 Cloverfield Lane. It's nice to be reminded of the simpler times. Anyway, keep doing what you do, fighting in the war room crew. Wow, I thought Anthony, I had no memory Mendes. of that. I'm hoping, I'm assuming that's before he won an Oscar. Just uh, I am, I am also there. assuming that. That is how you would know someone is alive. It's the only way. Uh, we also have one email where if you leave an international podcast app review, we would love that because that helps the algorithm but if you just want to get a hold of us uh you can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com this one uh comes from listener akib who is and the subject is great podcast and a question for david hello mm. fitware gang i started listening to the podcast about six to eight months ago and i'm a huge fan oh. i love the chaotic vibes and all the variety of topics you guys cover special shout out to dave for adding in stadium powwow to the podcast recently what an absolute bop I have a question for David. I'm currently applying to medical school and majored in biology from college. Uh, I have lots I can't of advice. Wait to see. Yes. Yeah. I can't wait to see where this comes <laughs> in. It, it comes back around. And majored in biology from college, but became the college newspaper's resident film critic as a senior, which served as an outlet for me to express my love for movies. Since graduating, I review movies for an independent website, filmobsessive.com. Whenever I write reviews, I always worry they're going to start sounding the same or that my structure is repetitive. As a huge fan of your writing, David, do you have any tips on how to make reviews as unique as possible? Don't we all? That's uh, a good question. I edit. That, that is a very good question. I fear that you're not asking the right person because I uh, often feel, and this is something that I, I don't think people who casually engage with my or any critic's work might notice, but I hope they wouldn't notice, but I definitely feel particularly when i don't have anything i'm not like particularly interested in the movie or i'm on uh, a bit of a time crunch which is often the case that i fall into a pretty uh locked pattern for how uh, my reviews go it's typically like a couple of paragraphs of uh some whatever sort of angle i find interesting in my way into talking about the movie and then a couple paragraphs of plot where things get a little bit easier uh once i've gotten my big take out of the way and then um just sort of tying it all together and i feel like it gets pretty stayed pretty fast in my head certainly at a film festival i feel that happening um and uh yeah i mean i often do feel like i'm only just writing the same thing over and over again which i think based on volume can be kind of inevitable because you know all these movies we see are passing through uh the same prisms uh you know our our brains uh over and over and over again so i think you know it's kind of inevitable that that might happen 
So, That's why all your hottest takes are on this podcast, because you get to get to talk it out. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how you avoid it. I think um, every writer is probably lots more of, sensitive to... Lots of ways to, to avoid it. <laughs> well, I think like every every writer is sens- is more sensitive to um, that happening in their own writing than I think their their readers would probably be. But uh, yeah, I mean, the best the best advice uh, I could give is just to try and lock on to something that you find particularly interesting about a movie and sort of work backwards from there yes. and then use that as your way yes. in um, and uh, help hope that. You know, you are compelled enough by what it is that you're trying to say that it sort of guides you into the article um, and your review is therefore sort of as unique as what it is that you're trying to say. Patches, you seem to have a lot of thoughts on this. That is good advice. I have three points that come immediately to mind as a person editing lots of things and not writing as many reviews these days. One, I would go to Google and look up um, Alan Sherstool's do's and don'ts of film writing. I don't know if does this group know and interact with Alan, who used to work at Village I Voice? I know Alan is. Yeah, so yeah. Alan wrote this screed about do's and don'ts. I think it's it was kind of going, getting circulated around the film community recently again, and I think it it is apt. I mean, it's a lot of like nitpicky, don't summarize, that kind of um, just things you'd never learn. I think if you even if you were in like a film crit college uh, class or something, but. From the trenches, really good advice. Uh, the other thing I would say is, I don't know, take what you uh, see, as David said, I think you put it elegantly, David, but like, I think there's a lot to glean from watching a movie and like writing in the style of the movie or like mm. be the movie. Not necessarily so literally, but like to your point, David, when each of us watch something, we feel something and you got to like work toward that feeling, that experience. I think the best reviews are about experience not trying to be objective or something uh, and my third is my third point is this this person who wrote us a letter is a is a medical student wants to be a doctor i feel like you gotta use that you gotta you gotta be the doctor mm. film critic like yeah come mm. not, not as a not writing not writing film criticism not, well not as a gimmick <laughs> yeah i mean continue to be a doctor and eventually just become a doctor please but um i don't know you're a doctor. You see things so differently. Use that. That's good. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I was just going like, to circle back on what Patrick's saying. There's definitely some truth and wisdom to the idea of, of letting the subject of what you're writing about inform the tone of your writing. Um, I think within reason, certainly, you know, when you see the exorcist believer I think you, you <laughs> and you don't like it. Uh, you might have a Objectively. more wry and flippant tone than uh, you might when writing about the zone of interest or something like that. I mean, I think like that is definitely you do want to be open to letting the subject of what you're writing sort of guide how you write about it to an extent, to an extent. <laughs> well, you can email your questions and praise to fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. On with the show. All right, this week on on Fighting in the War Room, we're doing a lot of Wes Anderson. We didn't really talk about Asteroid City. 
at the time this summer. And just in time for us to finally watch it, we also just got, I was going to say saddled with, but gifted with, I think is the appropriate world, at least in my, my experience. Four new Wes Anderson films. I mean, I saw our colleague Matt Singer over on Letterboxd wondering why Netflix, who has hosted and I guess paid for, we, if anyone knows the backstory of this, eventually please uh, spell it out for me because I don't know why exactly this happened other than Netflix owning all the rights now. They own the they own Roald Dahl in his entire library. So if you want to make a Roald Dahl thing, you got to go to Netflix. Wes Anderson loves Roald Dahl. He went to the Netflix and said, we're going to make some shorts. They were like, Wes Anderson on a streaming platform. Let's go. And what Singer was kind of complaining about on Letterboxd was like, there, there was zero fanfare for these short films that have come out. They have just, they just now exist on Netflix. The, the, uh, <laughs> one of them got a Venice premiere. The other ones have been kind of dumped unceremoniously, and they are not packaged together. When you go to Netflix, you have to either no, like, it's search really for Wes fucking Anderson. annoying. Here's it's, why. It's really I fucking annoying. I have, I have a theory why, because if they were all like part of a collection, then they would be like a television series, and they would not be individually able to be like short films from an Oscar standpoint. Like, I think they can't mm. be, I don't think they can be bundled and be turned into like a television series from Wes Anderson. They need to be individual films. And what's cool is they're presented on Netflix as films. Like the Netflix logo doesn't do its bong. Like you're about to watch disposable television. <laughs> you get the Indian sure. paintbrush logo. Like that. There could at least be silence. like a little, a little row on your Netflix that just has, that is the Wes Anderson you know, as a collection. spotlight this week. That is just all four of the films, at least for this week and next. I mean, something. If uh, the Netflix algorithm truly knew you, it would do that. But, it also it wants sure you doesn't. to watch what Love Island is that on Netflix that you're watching? I don't really know. No, Love Island is Hulu. How dare you? I can't keep track of this shit. There's so much. Um, the point is, first this episode, we're going to talk about the shorts. Then we're going to talk about Asteroid City, which we all caught up on. Some of us saw it when it was actually in theaters early this summer. Let's start with the shorts, though. Uh, we're going to talk about each one individually a little bit, but just to pull it back, I I'm really curious, like what people make of this experiment. And if people haven't seen the shorts yet, you're just dipping in. What Wes Anderson has done here is adapt for Roald Dahl stories in his extremely theatrical style, this point of evolution that he's reached where we're seeing a lot of the craft and the facade. And it's, it's almost like theater with sets being pulled back and actors running around in different roles in the shorts. Um, but the, the, the next degree the scripts are actually reading the Roald Dahl shorts. You'll see people like Benedict Cumberbatch and Dev Patel not not speaking just as their characters, but saying, I said, or he said. When you say and, people and, like Benedict Cumberbatch, name one. I'm going to go like I'm going to say that's Benedict Cumberbatch and Rupert Fred. I would say they're both okay. like Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Uh, we can dissect that later. Uh but yeah, this is this is a fascinating exper experiment, and I kind of curious like what you what you make of it. What's the point of this approach uh, versus maybe straight adaptation here? Like, what what did you get from this experience of watching all four of these shorts? This is a wonderful Can story of Henry, Henry Sugar, the Rat Catcher, the Swan, and Poison are the four stories that have been adapted. David. Can, can I give my, my macro take and then shut up? Um, hopefully. Oh, you can us. also talk to uh, my macro. <laughs> um, <laughs> we allow it. No, 
my my essentially my my you know biggest sort of far away take that I came from I think applies to both Asteroid City and the Roll Doll Shorts is that they are both sort of built around I don't know how deliberate this was in Wes Anderson's mind might tend to think not very but um you know there is a bit of an inkling that he has been sort of uh a little bit more responsive to the criticism against him not necessarily in a uh way that he's conceding to it but that like I, I think he's leaning you know, only further into things. Yeah, well, he certainly has. Been. I mean, the trajectory of his the trajectory of his career suggests that he is uh, only going further and further into his style, um, and you can see that certainly with Grant. Starting, I think, really with Fantastic Mr. Fox, which allowed him to have complete control over everything that was happening in the frame because he was working in stop motion, and that I think has been a goal of a miniaturist and a pointillist like Wes Anderson for so long. And then he was able to extrapolate that into live action. Um, and I think you really see that peak with something like Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, and he goes back to stop motion with Isle of Dogs. Uh, and French Dispatch is more sort of in the Grand Budapest vein and him playing around with shorter stories, uh, I think less successfully than he does here. But um, really what I'm, what I'm getting to is this idea that he has received all of the world's feedback about his style and the oppressiveness of his style and sort of the um, how emotionally stifling some people might seem to think that it is. And he has double, tripled, and in the case of these World Doll Shorts, quadrupled down on this idea that, um, that, that storytelling, you know, in a sort of like Brechtian and distancing way, um, in the way that he does it in, in these films can actually be a gateway to sort of pure emotion um, rather than a way of obfuscating it. Um, and, you know, I can give a whole spiel about Asteroid City, why I think it is about his characters confronting there. the unknown. We'll I mean, there. it is We're literally that, but we'll, later. we'll get there. We will but I think there. that these Roald Dahl shorts are really an opportunity for him to uh, go pure sort of like Wes Anderson Goblin maximalist mode. Um, I mean, literally more words per minute than uh, probably any other film uh, ever made. You don't think it's cynical, though. He's not like retaliating against the audience. Oh, no, 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 not at all. I think he's he's sort of proving he's sort of like fortifying his own point. He's sort of in in a way that doesn't feel defensive because it's obviously made with such sincerity. I think he is sort of saying, okay, I'm going to take my way of doing things to the absolute zenith like the really the furthest limit that i can think of i'm gonna make a film so dense that truly like every second nanosecond of it someone is jabbering directly at the camera um and this the scenery is constantly changing the sets are constantly evolving you're you know you thought the framing devices in asteroid city or the grand budapest hotel were elaborate where here is a story within a story within a story within a story and you physically see the geometry of that taking shape um, and he is doing all of this to show how it is sort of bulldozing the obstacles between, um, you know, us and the emotion that he's hoping at the sort of the core of these stories and how he's really through all of this artifice, um, creating an emotional reality that is so much that it has the potential to be in his hands as lucid, um, and sort of emotionally palpable as you know realism could ever be i mean we talk a lot about the ecstatic truth and whatnot and i think this is his avenue towards getting there and i think the wonderful story of henry sugar the actual short not the omnibus project is is like the most crystalline example of that that he's ever certainly the densest and most succinct that he's 
ever made. It, it doesn't hit me anywhere nearly as hard as Asteroid City does uh, emotion, emotionally, but I do think that they are of a, of a whole in terms of how and how they go about telling the story and what that style is trying to say. Do you think emotion really is the end goal of all of these? Like, I think that applies for Henry Sugar and the Swan, but the other two are kind of more like, I'm not, not joke stories, but it's kind of like they build up to a moment of being like, ah, oh, that's what this whole thing was about. And then it's kind of over. And like, my critique might be more with Roald Dahl, who wrote these stories, than Wes Anderson himself. Roald but Dahl, that's why it perfect, feels like a perfect human being. No perfect human whatsoever. being, never, never made done mistakes. anything wrong. No. Well, no. actually, that might be a good place for me to insert myself. Please. I actually find Poison one of the most interesting because yeah, I've too. seen the Alfred, the Alfred Hitchcock version uh, where they have to add they have to add like alcoholism into the story to sort of like bring it down to an everyday man. This is about a racist dude who thinks he has a snake on his stomach. And I think the, you know, by the time like poison's over, not only is it like the perfect amount of incident for 17 minutes, yep. but you, you get the, you get the idea of, uh, that it's anchored also in its place and in its time, uh, in a way that a lot of people, I think, try to soften, uh, Roald Dahl. So the fact that Wes Anderson was like, no, why would I change any of these, these insults just because you know, maybe modern audiences don't recognize that they're insults and therefore will slow play the racism that's happening. But it's like very apparent to me, somebody who's seen an actually whitewashed version of this story uh, that had treated it more like a thriller to see it treated more to the point of the actual story. Deeply more sad. Metaphor. Yeah, and, and very sad. I mean, the, the last line oh, is the, the, ben Kingsley the, line. the great rush. Yeah. yeah, that's that's my that's my. Uh, probably like favorite button that's put on the end of these. What does Ben Kingsley say? Oh, don't we make spoil. It sorry. Up. Okay. All right. Fine. I don't want to spoil poison. Something about yeah. whose whose fault it was. Uh, the entire. I'm going to say I'm not going to spoil uh, it, but I really don't just remember verbatim what it is. So uh, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I you know what, Katie? I remember the emotion of it. That's where <laughs> I got me at the end. So that's where I'm going to. Well, that's stick what with I would it, say. Like, that like all four shorts I found very emotional. Um, but even the rat you know, one, but the rat catcher is like almost like horror. I just, I felt the kind of pang of emotion. I felt genre at work there more than like profound emotional insight or something. You know what I mean? Like it hits hard to me. Yeah. I thought like I mean, I, the emotion I felt most was kind of awe at what was being pulled off, particularly I think the scenery is interesting, um, but the performances, like what these actors are able to do with all that hopping back and forth and um, in the swan where like Rupert Friend is like, you, you feel this heartbreak developing even within the stylist thing, like what David was saying. I think Wes Anderson obviously is coming up with that, but I was so thrilled watching these performers more than kind of uh, interested in the, the stories themselves. Oh, what, the swan. Like, if, for people who haven't seen it, the swan. Yeah. Can you talk a little about what it the is? The swan being the one that's basically, there? yeah, basically about a kid who's being uh, bullied by a bunch of other shitty kids and it takes place in like a bunch of like hedgerows. Um, and Rupert Friend is kind of standing there narrating the entire thing, like in all the other ones. And there's a kid running around in the background. And I think that was the second one I watched. And I think it kind of went the furthest was like describing a prop that isn't actually there. So kind of like dealing with the artifice in that way. So you're kind of watching a kid get bullied, but you're not really watching it. Um, and so, so much, so much of it relies on Rupert friend's face where he is kind of the older version of this character who you're also watching. It's very strange. It's very artificial, but 
the performance really sells that, as did Benedict Cumberbatch, I think, and the main Henry Sugar one, and then Def Patel in Poison. Um, there's just really interesting work going on there. All men. I I <laughs> whose fault? Whose fault is, is that? There is not a yeah, there is fault. that it, it, Katie that it did not occur to me that there is not a single woman on screen. <laughs> There's if one that ever glimpsed. None of Maybe them in the background in of, That's of one of the. Henry, Sugar, like of the Henry Sugar one, like when he goes to the casino, maybe there's a woman. I don't right. know. Yeah, but. they play. Yeah, that's a good point. I I actually liked Ratcatcher uh, because it was kind of the most theatrical. Uh, like it's not only one where uh, I, I think it's actually there's there's a sort of a reoccurring gag of certain things labeled as prop department, hmm. uh, but in Ratcatcher. Uh, it starts sort of with Ray Fiennes playing the rat catcher and most of his props are things that he's miming. Uh, and then eventually when it has to be a little bit more active, uh, he gets a prop from the prop department of like this rat that doesn't match the description of the rat in the story. He like sets it down. It becomes a stop motion rat and starts saying Ray Fiennes' lines. <laughs> and then Ray Fiennes and Rupert Friend sort of become the rat catcher. After the Rupert rat. Friend puts in false teeth, which is an incredible moment. Yeah, uh, but I just love the theatricality of that. I agree that the story's uh, maybe not as taut in terms of the words that are being said, but like really all of these, even though there's a whole bunch of uh, transitions and settings and nested stories within nested stories, uh, really gives me that feeling of like watching a good stage play where it's like you have the bare minimum you need to communicate the story. What is the actor going to communicate? And that was sort of the, the thing that kept me on my toes more than what's the conclusion of this story going to be. It's more like uh, yeah. in the example of Poison, how is Benedict Cumberbatch going to twitch his face this time, you know, given this development? It's so, it's, I was going to ask you what you think. I mean, David properly invoked Brecht here, uh, but what the, rem what the facade of it all, the exposure of... You know, crew people coming in and handing the actors props in the middle of the movie or seeing people swap out teeth uh, and what what that does. What the, is the, is the thrill to that just like stagecraft and the kind of magic of actually just putting it on like this because we don't see it in movies? Or is there do you think there's deeper meaning to how he's playing with breaking the frame and breaking the reality for me? Uh, I thought this was like almost a celebration of audiobook that was just praising Will Patton reading that Stephen King book, The Outsider, the other day. And I'm just like, I love hearing people read stories in The Swan. It's really just a one-man Rupert Friend show where he's doing different voices and, and, and different faces. And like, it, it's so expressive and fun to see someone deliver prose like it's a poem and get to see these words. I think, Wes, I have read very little about Wes Anderson's like interviews uh, about this. Um, but the one that I was perusing was like, he just wants to exalt Dahl's words. Like, when would you really get the chance to do this text service? And it's like, yeah, we never hear people read prose in this kind of staged manner. And it's, I found that really thrilling, but I don't know what people really make of the, of the stagecraft and the, and the facade, the reality breaking. I mean, I I liked it, but I also rewatched uh, the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. After I watched it the first time, I immediately restarted it because uh, there's a lot of cool like effects hidden in the fact that this is like artifice and basic. There's one moment in the wonderful story of Henry Sugar 
where he's trying to look through uh, a playing card and he's like studying by looking at a candle and whatnot. And when we first enter the set that's there, I'm like, that's either a miniature or a digital set. And so like a whole bunch of these shots where people are framed in very particular ways, uh, he lets the focus sort of be on like the very tip of their nose or the front of their face as they're like reading to you or some sort of reaction which allows for this like really soft feathering around the edges of characters so i'm pretty sure there's a couple of times in this where it's like the background doesn't exist it's being performed much more traditionally like you would in a black box theater uh but the visual effects and the things that he's learned through doing stop motion about like david was saying being able to have that level of control also means like a lot of times I'm pretty sure they're just, you know, pulling a setup to reveal a green screen and they're going to deal with that like later. Uh, but other times they're very intricate sets when they build out uh, Dahl's cabin and then sort of like artificially have him walk out of it and then put it in the distance and then sort of like really make sure that you see that's a real model as they're panning off of it. Uh, it just, it, it, there was a, it was a fun way to actively watch it and try to guess what the filmmaking, uh, tricks were. I don't think I got all of them right, or I might even not be right about the things that I'm talking about, but, uh, yeah, just sort of digging into, if, if he's gonna pay attention to every detail, then that motivates me to pay attention to every detail, mm. uh, in a way that I think works for newer Wes Anderson than it does for, you know, OG bottle rocket peeps. Real ones now? <laughs> ones now. Uh, I don't know, but real ones were toler tolerating of uh, the, the hecticness of film sets and new ones. Uh, I just assume that he has a firm grasp on it and every choice is intentional. To, to wrap up, do you guys think, is, is there anything like this? Like, I kept thinking, watching this on Netflix, I'm like, this, this feels one of a kind, especially in the streaming era. I had to go back, back, back in time to think of anything. I compare these shorts to, I was thinking about Jim Henson's The Storyteller. I don't remember, yeah. know if you remember that HBO series where they're just like going through myths or reading stories and playing them out with puppets. I was also thinking HBO eons ago used to do, like they would do a Goodnight Moon half hour special where it was them reading and extending Goodnight Moon through animation. This feels like the I've most... I've watched Even though Wes Anderson has done animated films, this almost feels like the most storybook animated thing he's ever done, even though they're obviously very real people involved. I don't know. What, 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 what are the I mean, touchstones I, here? What do you, what do you hear make what, of this project? I hear what you're saying, and, and my response is not kind of what you were looking for, but I, I feel like, you know, when you say, is anybody else doing anything like this? I'm just thinking about... Wes Anderson's sort of greater project and it, it always you know it's always sort of confused me when people are um wishing they would pivot away from his style and making the kind of things that he makes because there is no one else who is uh of course. you know Wes Anderson he's one of a kind he's completely sui generis I mean he he there's no one else make movies anything like him and he should be making the most Wes Anderson movies that he can possibly make and that seems to be the trajectory of his career um certainly over the last 10 or 15 years or so and uh more power to him you know I, lo I love I, that yeah. for him I love it for us yeah yeah I think you had good comps uh because like I'm really only familiar 
with excellent direct address from children's programming. That's where, like, <laughs> uh, like uh, if that's where you're explaining a story to a person, you're reading to a person, uh, you're illustrating it in some sort of, like, fantastical way. Uh, and, you know, Wes Anderson's movies aren't not for kids, but the the marriage of uh, Wes Anderson and Roald Dahl... But it Dahl turns you in into a kid. Thing. It's disarming, in a way. It's like, no one... Is it really if, if for kids? No, 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 no. What I, I'm saying, it is for adults in to turn adults into kids that, you know, mm. a bunch of us here, our parents, we read to our kids every day. And and the experience of being read a story like that is very familiar to our children and not us. We never hear it that way unless you're listening to an audio book and to hear someone look at us and tell us a story. I feel it's a very disarming situation and and, and it makes you into a child. Uh, and I felt that... The, Especially with the Swan short um, and and the Henry Sugar, just to, like where Henry Sugar ends up going, and and especially that uh, Wes Anderson brings Roald Dahl to life uh, through Ray Fiennes uh, in these shorts. I'm like I love people talking at me. It sends me to a different. Well, place. you are on the right podcast, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, talking down to me. Yeah. Okay. You're right. You're right. Uh, those are the I shorts. Think the only. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Next next group of shorts should be whoops all women. <laughs> We're gonna talk more about Wes Anderson in a second. There's, and I have even more questions for you all. So and there's 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 women in that. Don't worry. One. There's women there. But I have we'll I there. have so many I have so many exorcist questions in the meantime. Oh yeah, here Is we that go. A segue? I don't know. I I mean, no. Because we don't have segues. Okay. I've not seen The Exorcist Believer. I will. I won't. I'm just. There's many reasons that this would not be for me. What are the uh, reasons? But, uh, what are the top uh, three well, reasons you will not uh, be seeing The Exorcist Believer? Uh, I don't do well with horror movies. I haven't heard many good things about David Gordon Green's recent run of horror movies, and uh, everyone says it sucks. Those are my three reasons. Good reasons. Old, good reasons. Old, good old reasons. I don't, I don't know if I agree with number two. Yeah. Let's hear what but the critics let's have see to what say. The critics have to say. David, David, uh, you guys saw this one. <laughs> yeah, David, how are you feeling? Is your is your exorcist are you a believer? Uh, tank running on empty? Um, yeah. In the immortal words of Imagine Dragons, I went into this movie <laughs> saying, "Make me a make me a believer." David Gordon Green, uh, and and boy did he not! What a festering, stinky pile of shit this movie is. Oh boy! Um, I mean, truly one of the worst movies I've seen this year. If I can, uh, wow! If I can summon my inner like sort of Ebert and Siskel, Siskel and Ebert, as they were more frequently known, uh, way of talking on their television show. Uh, I mean, I fucking hated this. And I, you know, what's more frustrating about it even is that David Gordon Green. It's a low bar, but he musters a greater degree of craft than most of the mainstream American horror that we see. You can feel it really over the first half of the film where he sort of engineers this this ambient kind of uh, percolating frustration, not even dread, but this like this this sort of rage almost. Um, and some of the little jump scary sequences that, see, that he has that he has rather are pointed and purposeful in a way that they all, you won't find them in the, the red door, the insidious movie or something like that. But um, 
man, this movie fucking blows. It's uh, it is. I mean, I could and I could, did just write 1600 words extolling its virtues or lack thereof, <laughs> but that does not have a single original fucking thought in its head. Um, I couldn't think of anything more damning than the fact that the uh, the demons, when they possess two little girls this time, this is the aliens to uh, alien in a way, um, <laughs> only speaks in well, not only speaks, but it's like it's money line is verbatim. The same line from the original Exorcist film, um, because in the last 50 years, it has not come up with any new shtick whatsoever. Uh, and uh, I, I thought, you know, there was a, there is often a conservative streak uh, running through films about exorcisms because they sort of, by definition, um, imply the existence of God and there being some sort of moral order of the universe. Uh, but I did think there was like a an even more pronounced reactionary right wing element to this movie, I don't know how deliberate it was, but I feel like there is a lot of uh, very murky anti-abortion rhetoric happening around. There was the least one of the least of my concerns with this, this this movie, of which there are so many problems before you even get to anything that could be argued in terms of its uh, subtext, accidental or otherwise. But the whole thing is a hot mess. Um, it, it gets so, so, so dull as it goes along. The exorcism itself, which happens over the last half hour, is a complete chore. Um, as it tends to be in the Exorcist movies, barring the first one, I suppose, which is a movie that I've never really loved. Um, but the, uh, yeah, it's just like, it's very, very bad and lazy. And it, the only thing that it holds sacred is, uh, not, nothing to do with human life, regardless of its right-wing politics, uh, which may or may not exist. Uh, nothing to do with any of the emotions the characters are feeling. The only thing that's sacred here is, of course, the IP behind the movie, um, which is what is really, um, uh, at, you know, really at stake here. Um, I thought this movie I really was thought dog you might shit. say Ellen Burstyn, that Ellen Burstyn was sacred. Well, I mean, the, I mean, whatever the movie has going for it com- evaporates once and for all the moment Ellen Burstyn shows up, uh, her every scene that she's in screaming of huge reshoot energy, uh, at one oh, point, wow. spoiler alert, she, 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 uh, Suffers an injury, a rather severe injury, one might say. Um, and the next scene cut to, I mean, it's like a few hours have elapsed in the movie's time. And she is just like <laughs> calmly reciting an, a long monologue uh, with a completely unwavering voice about the faith that we need to have each other from her hospital bed. And it's like half of its ADR. I mean, it's like it, this movie is held together with scotch tape, which is very strange for a project that is part of a really $400 million dollar yeah. distribution deal for They're this and two other extra movies. Um, yeah, right? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, this movie. Two, I thought it was two movies. They're oh. gonna, they're gonna deep. Uh, no, they, they bought it for three. They've titled the second one, and that one's probably gone default. Going to come out, but that one, from my understanding of the deal, only has to come out on Peacock. Yeah, that's true. I mean, these were uh, these were going to be Peacock originals. I think all of them at, at the start, and then um, I think they saw how much money they were able to make on those opening weekends of Halloween when it opened day and date. And decide to go theatrical with it, which I don't begrudge them. But uh, Dave, I, I've been rambling and basically just uh, stumbling over things that I've already said yeah, slightly more tell us eloquently in print. Tell, tell <laughs> us why this is a masterpiece. Uh, it's uh, not good. I oh. co-signed most everything that uh, David said. I was a big fan, though, of the Halloween movies. And I think doing a reinvention on that is ultimately a little bit easier uh david gordon green when he's operating in good horror mood can be both uh funny and nasty at the same time and uh 
kids having to have exorcisms is is none of that. Starting your movie with the 2010 earthquake in Haiti is oh, not boy. that either. Oh, boy. oh uh, that's it, it plays real glib. It reminded me so it's much. It's something that of, happens to the protagonist of this film, and then we don't deal like, with it. At it's all. like the impossible meets the last scene of Remember Me. In that it's, you know, about, I mean, obviously there is not, it's not the, the same sort of like whitewashing element that the impossible brings to the table, but there is the idea of like, look at this tragedy, which claimed, uh, you know, estimates as high as 300,000 lives, uh, how it, uh, you know, impacted these fictional characters. And also it's a surprise. This actually is this devastating, or this whole prologue's taken place in the lead up to this devastating earthquake, which was what reminded me of the ending of Remember Me. I mean, it's a, a very glib That's way of starting uh, a really shitty movie. And uh, so not great to start out with. And then the thing that David's talking about, about its politics being fucked up, I also deeply felt uh, most actual exorcisms are the Catholic Church condoning abuse of a person that has a real problem and refusing to believe that it's a real problem and being like, devils! Luckily, this movie has a uh, lead character in Leslie Odom Jr. who is, feels that way, uh, at, at least at the start. The problem is that this movie is trying to decouple the exorcist IP from Christianity. Uh, the exorcism that happens sure at the end of this movie is a random association of spiritual leaders. There is, there uh, is not an exorcist in the film. Like, there are not a real people who in the film. get together to participate in an exorcism, but none of them by profession are exorcists. And the only priest who's involved is you know the the most cowardly of all the characters he hides in his car and he's just like a local guy he's not a trained exorcist <laughs> he's just like someone they find in a church so uh i, I commend that as a broad, broad idea it's like if you have to make three exorcist movies step one is get it out of this christianity like uh hole uh but it needs a much the, if the movie was just that, it might have had a chance. I think that like that big of an idea should have been the whole trilogy idea, the way we sort of un-Michael Myers, Michael Myers uh, over the last Halloween trilogy. Uh, but this one rushes it. Yeah, Ellen Bernstein, I'm glad I read uh, an interview with her where she's like, I did this one because they gave me enough money, I was able to establish a grant for young actors, and like that's what I wanted, and that's what I... I I'm glad she got that. Great work, because- Ellen Bernstein. Does, is like the complete opposite of how Jamie Lee Curtis like was resurgent in a new Halloween. Well, Jamie Lee Curtis she, was not ninety when they filmed the new Halloween, but yes. Well, I mean, just in terms of use of the character, yeah, not yeah, even yeah. in terms of like actual performance, because she's not bad. That she's just obviously there to read words off a page that she doesn't actually believe in because it's all nonsense. And then yes, she's introduced I, in the scene. She's not an exorcist believer. Back- believer. Is that what you're saying? No, I, I do. I do really appreciate Dave's context about why she did the money. Oh, why she did the money? <laughs> why she did the movie why? and what she did with the money? Because watching watching it, not knowing that, I you know he drives out to a a nice beach house to to meet her in the movie, and in my head I was just like, that must be the beach house that she bought with the money that she made uh-huh. in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> and already owned by the time fr- they did these reshoots. You think you're going in to see Ellen Bernstein like do a showdown with this devil that's now possessing little girls, but it's like the first scene she's actually in the same room with one of these girls, just like horrible medical injury out of the, the plot of the rest of the movie. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's weird. Um, I think the worst thing is it's not scary. Uh, really, like it, it. I think I had I was, you know, I jumped twice, but that's jump scary like the. 
most jumpy thing that happened to me is a girl slapped some glass because I wasn't expecting her to move that much. Uh, and that's, that's not great. There was a part <laughs> yeah. of me that realized it was bad like 20 minutes in. And then uh, like uh, once we started to get to the exorcism, I'm like, I would turn the corner on this film if they really do something like, oh my God, I've never seen that in a horror movie before with the exor exorcism. And I was waiting for that up until the credits started rolling. And then immediately once the credits started rolling, I got up, I walked out. They had not turned off the house lights. I don't know if this movie has a mid credit scene. It's just, it's, it's bad. You don't you don't need to go see it and tell me, uh, listener. The Exorcist just, just original don't. is good. Can we it just is say good. That? I agree. It holds up. I, I you know what I I don't know about. That. I don't really, really. This is not a hill that I. This is I've not a hill that I want to die recently. on. You've rewatched um, it recently. I, I rewatched it on Sunday night. Uh, okay. I, it is. It is. It was like the third or fourth time that I'd seen it. Uh, I do not feel nearly as passionate about my take on this movie as the people who love it feel about their take on this movie. So, like again. It's hardly worth bringing up, if not for the fact that you mentioned it. But uh, I find the original Exorcist to be like very—you did bait me—to uh, be very messy and emotionally all over the place and unconvincing. I honestly struggle to identify what its power is over people beyond it being a product of its time. Um, I find it silly and unserious, and none of the emotion really tracks for me. Some of it is, you know, it's, some of it is hard to deny. You know, Max von Sydow of it all is great. Um, but I, this is, it's just really not a movie that I, uh, connect with at all. And, uh, the best thing really? that could have happened for my, my appreciation of the exorcist is watching the exorcist. For you to see this one? I mean, to your, to your, <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. to your criticism of, of believer, like what I like, what I love about the original exorcist is, is Jason Miller as father Karras and, and, and the struggle there. It's not really the. The horror of it all it's that he is confronting god through this just horrific event and it can get pretty intense and scary actually the scariest thing in the original exorcist is that medical procedure they do where they're like sticking a giant needle in someone's eye right or like what do they do oh it's so sick yeah i mean the exorcist believer is a perfect title for the exorcist because that's what that movie's actually dealing with. Yes, it that's has a main character and it has an internal conflict. It sounds like this movie doesn't have a priest or a good exorcist in it. So. Well, it has a father who's going through some shit, but it's not like at the end he's like, well, obviously there's a god now. Like, I don't feel like that experience widened his scope anymore. Anyway, we're giving this movie, movie. a lot of... Uh, we're, yeah, not, not a good movie. Um, apparently the second one might be inevitable, so... You know, maybe you could David turn this around it. somehow, but it'll be tough. <laughs> Boy. Uh, well, the good news is that Maestro was not the worst movie I saw yesterday, so Bradley Cooper can Ooh. write a letter of thanks to David Gordon Green. T TBD. We're only uh, four months late or so, uh, but we're going to talk about Asteroid City, the Wes Anderson movie that is not a short film on Netflix, but it is on now, it is now on Peacock, which is how I finally watched it after missing it in theaters this summer. Uh, it's a decent sized hit, which is really nice to see. 
uh, like my parents went out and saw Asteroid City. They didn't really like it, which uh, for reasons that I understood <laughs> once I finally saw it, which we can get into. Um, but as I think we were alluding to, and it's probably as most people know by now, um, Asteroid City is like many Wes Anderson movies, very interested in stories within stories and uh, falseness and reality and, you know, how heightened you can make something and still have it be a real story. Uh, it is about a junior stargazer convention in the desert around the time of atomic bomb test in the 50s. But it turns out that's actually a play. And um, the movie toggles back and forth far more than I realized. Um, it's actually a play. And then Don't, you, like, you see them road. putting on it's, a play, and then you pull back, and it's actually a television show. It's a television about the making, about of, that the making of the play. No, I think that's important to go down but, that road. Uh, but, but it's also a play that it's a fictional play that never happened. Yes, um, yes, it's not yeah. a real play. And then when and when they're in the play, it looks like a movie, not a play. Yes, when they are in the play, it is the most real looking part. Unlike and when the they are outside of it, 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 right. it yes. is meant to. There is an internal logic behind it, as there is with you know, all of Wes Anderson's choices, but it is meant to destabilize you, I'm convinced. I mean, it is meant to put you in a sort of dream state where you are not entirely sure which substrate of reality you are in at any given time. Yeah, I mean, it switches between color and black and white, so I don't think you ever really doubt that you're in Asteroid City versus, like, in but the it's not. But it's not that you don't know, like, what you're watching in terms of, like, is this the play? It's just, like, there's so many layers of that. It, and what is the top, re the top, layer becomes sort of impossible yeah. to see it's like you're so deep under the water that you look up and you see sunlight but not the surface and i would say a good number of scenes you know there's uh, several actors who play multiple characters like within the the real real world and this play of uh, jason Schwartzman being primary among them and i think it's in the first scene where you see him in the black and white in the you know the real world like he enters the room and it's like you're supposed to know who he is and you can't figure it out. There's a lot of moments like that where you're like you don't really get what you're looking at for a long time. <laughs> I find this fascinating and destabilizing at the same time. I watched this movie on my way to the Toronto Film Festival, which might not have been the best choice because I then went and saw like a zillion movies and it kind of muddied my good. brain about it. But I've also thought about it a ton. Um, it was in a way that I don't think I have since Grand Budapest. I saw Perfect Days at the Toronto Film Festival. What does Katie think, David? Oh my David? God, what Katie, you... Katie. No, I mean, yeah. I, we'll fight I about that fight. when our top to tens come along, David. Perfect Days, a movie is this a Wes Anderson to... film where just yeah, men it's, are talking? It's, and a... it's, it's a, This is a Wes Anderson film that I liked and was confused by, but have learned to live in the confusion, which I think often happens for me in a movie that's kind of deliberately destabilizing the way you guys were saying that I kind of have to live with it a while. Um, I think Jason Schwartzman is about as good as he's ever been in both of the roles that he's playing. Um, he and Scarlett Johansson have like a really emotional relationship. Like we were talking in Henry Sugar about how he's sticking for emotion that I didn't, to that I didn't totally find, but I found it really everywhere in uh, Asteroid City, like including from Edward Norton, who I kind of instinctively don't expect much from, and then he really surprised me in this. It kind of the list just kind of goes on and on. Um, there's so much to it, and like I said, I can't stop thinking about it. So I think that has to mean I really like it. Can I just state a fact here that blew my mind? That Jason Schwartzman obviously first worked with Wes Anderson on Rushmore, and he was 18. Mm -hmm. He was 18 years old in when that movie came. When they shot that movie, probably in 97, it came out in 98. And now he's like the old dad smoking a pipe yes, in he is. Asteroid City. A lot of time has passed. And neither so are of them, you. Neither so are you, I know. Yeah. I know. Well, I guess that's what I'm reckoning here with. That the, uh, neither of them are that old right now. Uh, but they've been doing this for a long time. What a collaboration that they've created here. And that, like, 
Schwartzman's getting better, and Rushmore is a pretty damn good movie. Um, I don't know. What, where, 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 are we, where do we start with Asteroid City? I, Katie, you mentioned I mean, that your parents saw this movie in theaters and did not like it. I have encountered, you know, you, you also wagged your finger at us for covering this movie late, but I'm glad that we did, because I've met yeah. a lot of people who um, have seen it now and did not like it. They do not like this movie. They think this movie actually has nothing Oof. to say. And I'm astonished that they think it has nothing to say because the, the absence of something to say seems to be the point of the movie. And I'm curious how you guys would respond to that criticism that it's like about nothing or like what people don't mm. seem to like about I, the movie. What? I, uh, Hang I on, mean, David. I have an David, answer to that. Interrupting. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dave. Oh. Uh, my answer to that is uh, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. <laughs> that part I still go. haven't figured out. So you can explain that part to me. In that I am united with my parents. I mean, I don't know if it needs to be like uh, necessarily specific, but you, at some point you have to give yourself over to this movie, right? Uh, because everybody is feeling panic and everybody is feeling grief, and like a lot of times uh, when those you're you find these things in real life, uh, your initial uh, like action or your initial thought is you need to immediately act upon it. And that leads to a lot of stupid decisions, uh, I think, in the narrative of this movie. But uh, those stupid decisions end up being uh, exposing decisions of the characters and the people going through it and how they deal with their uh, particular trials they have to go to. But you have to go into the fugue state to push aside the alien that's cataloging asteroids and the fact that you know, at at some point, Leif Schreiber is like shooting an actual laser. Like you have to push all that nonsense to the side to find the emotional core of it, which I think is what um, Jason Schwartzman's character uh, at the end of the film is actually doing. He like gets to the end of the play part and he's like, I don't I don't really know what I'm doing here. Right. And it's like, yes, the movie is taking you on that journey. We're at the beginning. We get a story that we feel is very straightforward. And it's so straightforward, as a matter of fact, they're going to give you chapter titles and tell you when, like, the next movement's going to happen. But it increasingly gets more and more complex as we go further, deeper down the rabbit hole. And ultimately, we're dealing with a, I think, more emotional, uh, non-logical conclusion at the end of the movie to the problem that we know and is stated it exists in uh, the beginning of the movie in each of the layers. Just on the Asteroid City layer... Uh, Augie, Jason Schwartzman's character in that uh, his wife died and he has to tell the kids and that's why they're going to go, you know, get involved with Tom Hanks, uh, her her father. And so that's a very basic thing in any other movie. That would be the entire plot. But that's where this one sort of starts before it begins drilling down Uh, and basically stripping away the need to have details is at least how I read Asteroid City. Like the more... Uh. You need to have the details, the more they uh, will be unfulfilling to you. They're just, the alien didn't come to do anything but catalog the rock. That's an interesting take. I think what I resonate with with what Dave was saying is that for me, this is really a movie about the unknown, which is so fascinating in the context of Wes Anderson's body of work, because his characters are like to a person. Um, Did I just hear my child cry? She gets really upset when I <laughs> monologue about Wes Anderson. Um, like to a person are these incredibly headstrong people who have answers for everything. These rationales that oftentimes are very sort of self-serving and arrogant, but because it's because they are so 
afraid of being vulnerable. They're so afraid of not feeling like they have the answers to any of the questions that life uh, puts in their way. And the, the foolishness that that results in is where Wes Anderson movies mind so much of their humor from. But in the case of, um, of Asteroid City, we're talking about a character who uh, in West in Jason Schwartz's character was confronted with sort of the most unknowable emotion that one can really face in this life, which is grief. I mean, like the unknowable, unknowable aspect of losing somebody that you love and not having any sense of when, you know, you might be able to fill that void or how or where they went in some sort of you know, spiritual sense uh, in the universe and the sense of space dust and so forth. And uh and this movie is sort of confronting that head on and in what I find to be enormously moving terms, yeah. earning that character and others a sense of peace with the unknown, which is ironically or not ironically, maybe deliberately, the most alien thing that a Wes Anderson character could possibly feel. And uh, man, that scene when it all comes together with uh, and spoiler alert, I guess, uh, for this movie, but uh, when... When Jason Schwartzman sees a certain very famous actress uh, who has previously not really been in the movie uh, standing on a balcony across from him, um, it is just uh, man, it is as much of a gut punch as anything was. That's an incredible scene. Yeah. And and, that scene has like eight different distancing techniques to keep them from feeling like they're connecting. And that's the whole point of how much it connects anyway. Yeah. And I, 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 I'm, I'm with you. David and David, I think we're kind of all on the same page here, which is this, this this feeling of the unknown and how like what I got out of it was this clash between the science minded and then pulling back and like creating art uh, about people who should know what's going on and then being confused about trying to put on a performance and like knowing what it means. And for me, I my takeaway was like a lot of this doesn't have to mean as much as people want it. To mean and when i heard a lot of friends say they didn't like this movie because it didn't mean anything to them i, I find that fascinating because it seems like the characters are confronting that like what is in space where do people go when they die what does this performance mean all of these questions about the unknown and the abstract and i feel like wes anderson's just like we do it because it's we want to have fun here too like i think this movie is a straight up comedy where you get a lot of good bits and you get a lot of good actors i kept thinking about Anchorman. Throughout Asteroid <laughs> City, because I think, in it. Well, I didn't really think about that weirdly enough until just now. But um, I, I just think this is a straight up comedy too. Like, there's just a lot of funny scenarios and funny bits of dialogue. And while I do think there's a lot bubbling underneath the question of like, does it have to culminate to something? Do we have to have all the answers? It's not about that. It's also about just being really funny and having Liev Schreiber shoot laser beams and have these like very quirky kids. <laughs> repeat funny names and like do science experiments and and they seem to get like the pursuit of answers is maybe more fun like the art of science is more fun than trying to be concrete and know everything about this world uh, i mean it is a very funny movie and yes wes anderson makes very funny movies but i think about like you know that that moment when when uh jason schwartzman's character is saying it says like am i doing him right when he is uh yeah, I mean, it's like it's it's so it's so tapped into that feeling of going through something and wondering if it's the wrong way of processing an emotion or like what you should mm. be feeling in a moment um, and sort of that distance between yourself and your own feelings. And that is something that 
Wes Anderson's characters have always been so preoccupied with navigating for themselves and trying to sort of rise above and, and remain um, in control. And because of the premise of this movie and its conceit with all these various layers, I mean, the characters are confronted with a sort of wiggle room and an uncertainty that, that Wes Anderson characters are usually allergic to. And I, that it starts trickling in early on and just seeps deeper and deeper and deeper into the fabric of what the movie's doing. And by the end, that sort of self-questioning aspect, um, I feel like resonates in every line and often, you know, the funniest lines, uh, you know, to speak to what Patches was saying about how funny this movie is. But I do yeah, think I it's a, it's it's a tr- objectionable take to say that this movie is not about anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, well, I'm, a, I'm agreeing I, I, with that. I, I think it is very much about. Yeah, I know you are. It is, it is about not having necessarily the answers to that. I could imagine people experiencing the the comedy and, I, but I don't know how you watch this movie and you hear Tilda Swinton, whose character is an astronomer, I Dr. believe, Hicken-Looper. Dr. Hickenlooper, mm-hmm. like have these, she's showing the kids the telescope and talking about discovering stars and muttering under her breath how she thought she might have kids, but actually she discovered this star and I'm like, there's just such pain bubbling up Mm -hmm. uh, at all times throughout this movie as they're cracking jokes, as they're like grasping for answers, but never finding them. How is this movie about nothing? I just do not understand how people (laughs) could could leave that. And yet I do get it because it's moving so quickly and it's bouncing between layers. And if you're not, if you're not someone who's had their head in the stars, I guess, wondering what's out there and why nothing makes sense and questioning God and the cosmos, then maybe, maybe this is not a movie for you. I think you have to be on its wavelength a little bit. We're not really talking about the way that it's also about filmmaking. I mean, we kind of did and like a lot in the earlier shorts discussion about, you know, Wes Anderson trying to embrace artifice, but the way that it makes you question like, which is the real story and which isn't. And the, like that the asteroid city world is so obviously artificial but it's the one that you're kind of inclined to see as real because it's in color and because of the way the camera moves um it's just it's fascinating to watch anderson kind of imbue that uncertainty that we're talking about in the audience as they actually watch something like that like he's done stylization so much but i don't think he's ever done it so visibly like that but i think in this way it it directly comments on like what he's grasping at which is nothing needs to make sense the larger in life than life questions won't be answered but if we could process them through art, then at least they're fun, or at least they they become more meaningful. We can ask them out or loud. We can, it's we can share them with others. Way. Exactly. We can at least be together while we don't understand the universe. That's kind of how, for me, the comment on art is like, we must do this to ask these kind of questions, or you'll be stuck in your own head in your own universe. You'll be um, stuck in but, your own little mm-hmm. cabin talking to Scarlett Johansson through a window. Now that sounds There are worse things. That sounds yeah. awesome. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a the pandemic aspect we, of it too, which maybe someone else should talk about. Like that he wrote this movie as quarantine during the pandemic. Oh, interesting. I don't know anything about that. Do you know what's the what's the deal there? I think he just wrote it then, and like then oh. you look at Jason Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson talking through those like Zoom box windows. Like if you, when it's you think fucking, of it through that lens, I think it's wow, there. I did not think about it's that. It's so all. fucking wild to see Scarlett Johansson be this good. In a movie, she's so it's like good a slap in, this in the movie. face. Yeah. What are you it's talking like, about? You saw what, Black Widow. She was this good, <laughs> but it's like no one. You know, I think back to Lost in Translation, but also you know, even more sort of um, forcefully under the skin, where she's cast perfectly. I mean, playing into a certain uh, vacantness, but they're like she is a talented actress, and no 
movie star on her level has expressed, like maybe only The Rock has expressed, not that The Rock is necessarily on Scarlett Johansson's level. I think, you know, in terms of the box office, The Rock considerably above, but like, you know, no other actor on that level has expressed less interest in making art in movies over the last like 10 years or so. I mean, you know, and you know, you do you Scarlett Johansson, you want to have kids. That's great. You want to make your money. You want to marry Colin Jost. If you're in those Marvel oh. movies, like, you know, get that Mistakes money. Have been I would made. do, but what's that? Mistakes have been made so many yeah, times. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, and then, and then she'll pull this fucking like rabbit out of her hat when someone like Wes Anderson comes calling and it's like offensive. To me, in a way that she can be this good out of nowhere. And you're like, oh, of course, Scarlett Ranch is a great actress. She's always wonderful. And you're like, wait, no, that's not true. Like, she is a good actress, but she is not always wonderful. She is usually in dog shit. Uh, and I hope that this is, I mean, obviously, there are certain filmmakers who she will deign to work with who are going to bring that out of her. But I do hope, because I do really enjoy seeing her on screen, that uh, she will, this will be the start of a sort of renaissance for her where she'll continue working with You want her to get back with Taika Waititi, is that what you're saying? Mm, Another Taika. Uh, would we say, would we say <laughs> he's an interesting <laughs> filmmaker? I maybe, don't know. Maybe, maybe that's She's going to be in that next Gold Wind sequel that's definitely coming out someday. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Overtime. <laughs> uh, I mean, to, to kind of wrap up or veer us towards the, the more macro here, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about Something you said, David, about Wes Anderson, you know, he's getting only more Wes Anderson-y. And how, if you're a fan of his, how would you not want this to happen? Or if you love movies, how would you not want this to, for an artist to just, like, solidify style and voice? And I don't, I don't think throughout all this style he gets knocked a lot and AI is generating fake Wes Anderson shit because his aesthetic is so known. Still has real characters and real personalities, there's real situations in these movies. And I wonder... Maybe it's because we just watched the shorts. Is Wes Anderson like the only guy who writes short stories and sh makes short films in all of his movies? Like he seems like a preeminent short film maker, even when he's making feature films. Like it's the advantage of the layers here. It's the advantage of a huge cast. The, what a deep bench of of a. We haven't talked about like Tom Hanks saying you must be some some kind of genius. You must be some kind of brainiac. Uh, love, love Tom <laughs> Hanks' delivery of this. Um, but like, I feel like he's making short films, and that is the the Wes Anderson key here. That no one will match him because he's doing something totally, truly something different. Am I am I spooky here? Well, is Asteroid his City are so kind of like the shorts. They're so dense that you can pack more in the 104, however many minutes Asteroid City is. It's not particularly long. It's certainly not two hours. Um, than, you know, most filmmakers are able to do in a 10-episode miniseries. I mean, and they, they feel very dense. Um, they don't feel short in a way because there's just, there, there's, you really put through the ringer when you watch them for the first time. There's just so much to compute. I don't know if that's what all you're saying, but... I, I yeah. Patches, I think you're correct, but also I think he's just uh, grown up in a time in the film industry that even if he wanted to do shorts, I think Unless, you know, now he probably could get a whole bunch funded, but, uh, you know, coming up, it, it was probably like a fun way. Like you start out with Royal Tannenbaums and they have it's moving to like a whole story. But there's like that opening, you know, 30, 40 minutes where you're establishing everybody and how their authors and their bits and pieces. 
sort of plays short filmish. So to be able to make it like a Russian nesting doll, like this one is, uh, probably benefited it. But it's more like recently, like I think the French Dispatch probably felt the most like a collection of short films to me that were like loosely connected by, I don't know, an overall feeling. And maybe that's not why it, that's why it didn't work as well for me as something like Asteroid City. But Asteroid City almost feels like, uh, what if David Lynch actually really wanted to talk to you instead of just show you things? Hmm. Like, we're moving further and further away into, like, almost a surrealist territory where they're recognizable as humans, but the more we dig into them, the more we're maybe emotionally close to them, but the characters start falling apart. So in that case, you really benefit from having like five levels deep to go, you know, an inception number of levels deep to go into a movie uh, because it allows you to break the sort of internal uh, character assumptions that we want to make about each character having like a three act structure. We're like, nope, we're going to learn all about this person, but that's really just the introduction because that's just, you know, the background of Scarlett Johansson's actress character. Her real character is in the conversations. So it, it sort of feels more like a distancing uh, of plot to me by um, embracing like these little micro vignettes and sort of like that allows you to make a much looser but also probably much more accurate uh, overall statement uh, that shoots you know I, what is it like you need the, what, what did Stargate teach me you need five points in space to establish an actual vector that you're going towards that's that's what <laughs> these sort of wow. shorts within shorts are kind of helping me do you did it. I did it. We got Stargate in there. That's what we've been waiting for. David Lynch and Stargate, same monologue. Here's my true wrap-up question. This is pure speculation, but again, it's on the wavelength you were on, David, which is like, I, I'm amazed that Wes Anderson's moving at such a clip. Like, he's producing a lot at the moment. Maybe that's like pent-up pandemic, you know, created a lot of material, now we get to shoot it all. Um... Can, does, do you think this style like bursts at a certain point? Because it does seem to just be escalating in terms of the artifice and the amount of characters and the the layers of of storytelling going on. Is can it continue to just ride at this level? Is there any is there a, a comp of a filmmaker of the past who's kind of hit his stride or her stride in this way? uh and then and then kept it going like it almost seems like he's blowing up and gonna burst and i and i love it i love every second of these movies but i'm just like how do you continue to be on a tear like this yeah call it know. is Wes you've anderson asked, you've asked a large question i don't know like <laughs> is he entering his flop era plenty of, plenty of characters will enter their flop era and plenty will change it up you i know, can't imagine Wes anderson flopping. can you can he make a yeah. bad movie? I mean, I mean, I mean nobody liked the French Dispatch. Like, I don't. I, I, I wouldn't call I mean, it I, Dispatch, but it was time. like it was like pretty it, it poorly is, regarded. Uh, Isle of Dogs. Nobody like. Yeah. I like Isle of Dogs. Had a huge fan. Had a great time. I, I, you know, I I think I think it's a bit strong to say that nobody liked either of those films. Um, but uh, and especially you know that those are two of my least favorite Wes Anderson movies, and there's still plenty to like about them. Uh, but it. Definitely felt to me anyway, um, like Asteroid City was a big return to form for him. Um, and I don't know, it kind of put to rest any of the, the kind of fears in the short term anyway that Patches is, is talking about. 
You just, every, you just want every to next movie could be. Every next movie could be a bomb. Yeah, I'm happy that it hasn't been happening. I guess and I don't that even we're back mean, on a. I don't even mean like financial. Trend. I know what he means. I know that like yeah. it just like the the style becomes like so all consuming that it becomes a black hole for anything else and just like completely. Like you know, the, the only other person sort of I can think of is like themselves. maybe Tim Burton, who we know flamed out because he seems to kind of run out of ideas and became his style. I don't think of Wes mm -hmm. Anderson as a visual stylist. Even though that seems very yeah, I, like an obvious way I, to label him, but he's much deeper than that. Um, I think I even Isle of Dogs, going. which is a, a flawed movie, uh, to be sure, you know, the emotional core in all of his work is so strong and so sincere that, and, and usually, you know, so inextricably woven throughout the film style that it's very hard for me to imagine him. Right. making something as plastic and empty as you know, the last 25 years of a Tim Burton movie. I also don't think that Tim Burton ever made anything that is anywhere close to the same level of Wes Anderson operating at the peak of his powers. So, One of the reasons I bring this up um, is I was having a conversation with someone about Paul Thomas Anderson, whose career went from like very ornate to stripping it all down in a way. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, reducing style in a way, whereas Anderson is, is, Building, building, building. You can't imagine. I can't imagine him making like a Royal Tenenbaums or a Rushmore now, and uh, or maybe he would, but with a, a difference. I don't know. Those are young persons. Yeah, films. you're absolutely right. Uh, yeah, they're. They don't think he's interested in anything like that. Although it is interesting to see, you know, Paul Simonson, as you said, you know, his, his style has definitely gotten a lot more aesthetic over the last few years. I mean, Licorice Pizza, a little bit of a rebound away from that, but. Um, I think the maturation takes such a different shape in different filmmakers. And I think, you know, you could plot the trajectory of how uh, Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson's films have evolved and they would follow similar lines, but how those lines express themselves is so different. And you could do it with like a David Fincher. I mean, this is what our friends at Blank Check do all the time in a way, but like, um, you know, we're covering David Fincher now and Fincher definitely went the more ascetic route. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it, the filmmakers do. I think you could always kind of make a case become more themselves, uh, for better or worse, as they as they mature. Well, I think it's time for another Wes Anderson American Express commercial. That's what, yes, yes, that's what we want. Fuck. That's what we want. Yes, the best fund fund some more shorts by giving us one commercial, <laughs> or maybe we can call the American Express commercials a short in and of themselves. Oh my god, Ooh. think about that. It's art, man. How long ago Mind did blown. that? That came out in two thousand four. We're I have old. Some feelings it? about that? Yeah, we're old. Like uh, as Patches was saying towards the beginning of this segment. I didn't okay. even say that I really love the alien in this movie. Anyway, Asteroid City. Oh my god, it's incredible. The That's alien in this movie like, is amazing. One of the great reveals, um, man. And I saw this movie. Little alien. I, I had the pleasure of any of the trailers were out. I hadn't seen them. I don't think I had the trailers reveal that it's about an alien. But I had no idea when I saw this movie and the alien, an alien arriving in a Wes Anderson movie was as shocking to me as it is to the characters in Asteroid City. <laughs> and I, it was just a really wild thing to see. I was like, they're not going to like, what's happening? And then it gets out and he's just. It's a, and then, that, and like, then Jeff Goldblum gets involved. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, love, my I, love, yes. I love this movie so, so, so much. And I really Same. think over time, its reputation is only going to uh, be you know, burnished. Asteroid City. You can see it now at home and not have to go to the theaters.
that does it for this week's show. As we said, we will not be back next week, but we'll be back Aww. the week after. Uh, and, you know, if we uh, manage to record something or share something from our reunion in New York, you'll find out about it. Oh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, executive editor over at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter and Blue Sky and Letterboxd at Mr. Patches. We have a website, fightinginthewarm.com. I guarantee we've talked about Wes Anderson before. Maybe we had the exact same conversation. Mm. Maybe this podcast is actually nested inside of a bigger podcast that we've had earlier in the year or later in the future. I don't know. Fightinginthewarm.com. Listen to our old episodes. I'm David Ehrlich. That's it. No, you can find me on uh, whatever. What do I say? You can find me on X, uh, where I am going to be linking to my reviews, but you'll just see a picture, I guess, now and click on it, maybe. Um, unclear how that's going to work. Um, you can find me on Letterboxd. You can find me on IndieWire, where I wrote a very long review of The Exorcist Believer, which said more or less what I said on this podcast. Uh, you can find all of us, most importantly, at a tiki bar in New York City next week celebrating <laughs> Dave's book. Hey, but also on private iTunes. gathering. Don't come find yeah. us. We will see you at Dave's if you're able to, If events. you're able to assemble all the clues and uh, find us there, <laughs> then you're welcome. But, uh, you can find us all on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. We'll read it live on the show. Dave, where else can we do that? You can also email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com with reviews, with thoughts, uh, loving the praise, as I said before. And you can find me on Twitter at DA7E and uh, head to the mcubook.com if uh, that, that sort of thing is interesting to you. I catch myself in a yawn in the outro every once in a while. And today was that day. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. <laughs> Find me at Vanity Fair on the Little Gold Men podcast, where we talked about the Golden Globes announcing a whole new category this week. Um, you know, that's the place for things like that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm not calling it X, but I'm also on Blue Sky, both at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. We're all on both of those places at F-I-T-W-R, where you can tell us your favorite part of the Wes Anderson American Express commercial, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of the Exorcist Believer, what's cinema's creepiest child? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you in two weeks. Tonight, a thousand heartbeats beat.